Welcome to another episode of Ravens at the Crossroads. I'm Mistress Prime. I'm Tyler Matthews. And we're here today with Kanu. And Kanu, you are the current national first officer of the Covenant of the Goddess. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. And um, you are also uh, the leader of your coven, or? Uh, I'm the high priest of Beachfire Coven. Okay, and that's based in Florida? Yeah, we're in the Miami area of Florida. Okay. Um, so, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, you mentioned I'm first officer of COG. Um, so, one of the things that I've been doing in the community, basically, is participating in Covenant of the Goddess in a number of ways. Um, I'm going to be ending my term as first officer of COG at Salon, uh, and I've served for two years. Uh, I've served in, as first officer of COG before as well and in a couple of the other national offices. So it's one of the things that I've really valued to be able to try and contribute to a larger community through helping serve COG. Um, the, some of the other offices I've held include the National Publications Officer, and uh, I've been serving as the NETCO for a number of years along the way. That's a term a lot of people don't understand, but for COG folks, that's our internet coordinator, so I try and help with our email lists and some general tech support. Um, that's probably the service that's reached the broadest community, mm -hmm. um, but I've been really proud to have helped found Everglades Moon Local Council of COG and to have uh, served as its first officer, uh, from at least the initial first officer, and then uh, been happy to turn that role over to others and to continue to, to be a service in my local community um, through COG as well. Um, Beachfire Coven's uh, been in existence for over 15 years in uh, the Miami, Florida area. And we've got a, a great group of people who uh, have a very eclectic practice. Um, we would still uh, classify it in the Wicca and witchcraft type of area. Um, but uh, my, my priestess and I both have a very diverse background in magical systems. So uh, what we really wanted to form uh, was not a particular trad-based coven, but a group of people who could develop and support each other's magical practices and to uh, also find ways for our members to help contribute to the community. And it's been a really satisfying um, run for us. So um, and I'm, I'm really grateful uh, for the opportunity to have a good close-knit magical uh, kind of homestead. Yeah, you do have a, um, a very well-networked community. Uh, you guys are very active. Uh, at least I can tell from California when I've interacted with your local council uh, over the years that you guys are very uh, well organized together. Uh, I don't know how to explain that any further. It just seems like you guys uh, do definitely support each other. Um, we generally like working with each other and that's made it um, not a burden to try and get together to meet, to plan activities, or to see what we can do. Um, for each other or for the, the wider community. Mm -hmm. um, we like working with each other, which is not something you can just make happen. Um, so we feel real fortunate in that regard. You know, we help put on the annual festival um, uh, right near the middle of winter, uh, usually the first or second weekend in December called Turning the Tide, um, and uh, been producing a podcast of our own for many years now too. So there's a couple of ways in which um, we've really been able to not just be inward looking uh, to, to do activities for ourselves, but to be a little bit outward looking toward our, our local community and well, for the podcast, 
uh, I don't really know how far it goes, um, but, a, but a broad community again there. And the Turning the Tide Festival has been really important to us because um, uh, you might remember uh, in my prior term as, as first officer, uh, it was a little bit of a hard year and coming out of that, our local council um, decided, uh, well, I think I suggested actually that we have a gathering um, in part for ourselves, but maybe in part for a local community to try and help us have a little bit of a reset to focus on what we could do for service and to give us an opportunity to work together on a real positive goal. And it's been um, successful. It's a small gathering, but the, the site and our own intent uh, haven't been to grow it into something really large. But we've had, you know, generally 50 to 70 people every year. And it good. makes for a very nice, intimate setting to do some magic and share some workshops and uh, have some other people from mainly South Florida uh, come and meet us and help also, you know, contribute to having some community event that, that happens regularly that people can look forward to. Cool. So it's a camping event? There's cabins there and there's camping space both. Um, so yeah, it's a small um, campground area that even though it's very urbanized around it, everybody seems really surprised when they drive in all of a sudden that you really feel like you're a little isolated from everything around you. Um, there's a, a little theater-style fire pit that's lower elevation than the entrance, and most of the cabins in the hall area are either a, a little bit away from the entrance with fencing and some foliage around to isolate some of the sound and certainly the, the visual access to the site. So you really do feel like you got a little a little getaway. Nice. And how long has that been going on for now? Um, uh, I should know it for sure. Uh, I believe we're going into our 13th year. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Because the first time I served on the national board was 2004 or 5, I think it was. Um, and it was you and Kirk White. We were one of the first co first officers, mm -hmm. so we had to share the first officer regalia, as Cog calls it. I remember that. That's right. I have photos of this somewhere. So we had to choose who got to wear which tiara. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was an interesting year. Um, so how long have uh, how long have you been on this path? Um, the first time I met people in the craft was in 1986. Um, before that, I developed a little bit of a meditation practice. It wasn't completely regular, but um, it led to some experiences that I thought were interesting. Mm -hmm. um, didn't really have anywhere to take it in particular, uh, and I wasn't really uh, seeking the path out. But I had um, come to the conclusion back in junior high school that I wasn't sure that Christianity was going to be my long-term path. And by high school, um, I. Uh, been active in, in uh, my youth group in a Lutheran church and after helping lead a couple of uh, Easter sunrise services as a part of the youth group the pastor actually asked me if I'd considered going to the seminary mm. and I told him I understood the question but I didn't think that it was the path for me and um, he revisited it with me uh, once or twice after that but he was respectful uh, that, that uh, and, and not overly pushy that I didn't think it was the right decision for me so kind of onward I went, and um, in college I made a couple of friends, uh, just through classes and campus at first, that um, 
I enjoyed visiting with. They'd had me over to their house, and one evening um, I was already off campus. They lived nearby campus, and I stopped by to say hi. And um, uh, just a little bit older than college guy that I had never met answered the door holding a small baby. And <laughs> there didn't seem to be anybody else in the living room right there. And uh, I explained that I was uh, had come to stop by to see my friends and. He said, oh, well, they're just doing a meditation in the other room, but they'll probably be wrapped up soon if you want to you stick around for a few minutes. Uh, I said, sure. Um, and knowing he had a little baby, maybe it was a reasonable explanation, but it kind of piqued my interest. After they came out you know, of the room, people were a little surprised to see somebody else in the house. <laughs> um, so I, I could tell that, and uh, so I pretty quickly said, hi, just stop by. I'll, I'll catch you later, and off I went. But... Um, I figured I would follow up with them soon about it just to say, so what's that about? And before that was able to happen, someone approached me on campus, uh, another kind of third party friend that I knew better than they did at least. And she said, uh, I've been invited to a circle at these people's place coming up um, in February. It was uh, an embolk. Mm. And she was invited by somebody else who apparently was participating in their coven at the time. And she said, uh, I know you know these folks a little better than I do, so I wanted to know if you'd, if you'd come along, because I think she felt uh, uh, maybe a little bit... Apprehensive. Apprehensive, or didn't, you know, wanted to go with someone else she knew well, that knew them too. And, uh, so I said, well, sure. And <laughs> since I knew them somewhat well now as friends, getting to, uh -huh. um, the next time I was over at their place, I said, so I've been invited to a circle at your place. You know, um, February 2nd and they both looked very surprised looked at each other a little bit and had a, a small kind of quiet conversation to, uh, and, and said well we uh, didn't really have a, well um, wasn't supposed to be open that uh, so well uh, are you really interested in this kind of stuff and of course at this stage and what I knew about the craft I literally had almost no idea what they were asking you know but I said yeah, I'm curious. Um, and they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to handle on, on the other end that this was not supposed to be an open ceremony. So, you know, we're sorry, but we don't think that, that we can do that. But um, here you go, read these books. Okay. Um, now, the friend that invited me never did go to a circle with them. That, the fact that that was closed, um, even though I followed up, and I told her I, I had and stuff, she, she never followed up herself. So it was an interesting kind of like roundabout intro to uh, the craft community. But um, they basically gave me uh, Russell's A History of Witchcraft, uh, Drawing Down the Moon, and Spiraling Dance. Uh, nice. The Spiral Dance. So I, I, I took them home, and a week later I came back with them, and they said, okay, so how's it going? And I said, well, I've read them. And they went, what? <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, they're really interesting. Uh, and they go, uh, okay, here, read these books. <laughs> they gave me another set of books to read. Because <laughs> I think they're trying to determine, like some many people might, you know, uh, kind of seems a little interested or a little eager, but, you know, we, we want to make sure that there's a chance for him to do some independent, you know, reading up on it and see and be able to gauge, you know, gauge my interest over a little bit of time. Um, so that was fun. But by Beltane, they were going to do a camping gathering uh, of their own group just outside of town uh, and do a ceremony there over the weekend to celebrate Beltane. And I got invited along. And 
became a member of what was uh, called at the time the Navigator's Lodge. Um, it was a group of people, uh, some with Georgian training, uh, Georgian tradition training, mm -hmm. up through second degree that had formed their own group and were uh, relatively early stages. I met them during their first year uh, and they were, they were starting out uh, to basically form their own group. And uh, the one of the really interesting, I would say, benefits for me of being there early on is as they were starting to do that, uh, even though they're much more experienced than me, one of the kind of group meetings that we had was they wanted to go over what they'd learned in training about the basic kind of ceremonial steps of a ritual. Hmm. You know, because a lot of them are relatively standardized in many traditions because they wanted to, to determine what did they understand those steps to mean, why did we do them, and to formulate basically a kind of core ritual format for the group. Okay. So one of my earliest experiences in the craft was sitting down with people who were significantly more experienced than I was, uh, going over ritual in detail. Like, why do we do that? What does it mean? What do you see when that happens or feel when that happens? Um, what does this represent when we say these words? Right? And so uh, I had a really kind of eye-opening experience that went well beyond any books and really in some ways beyond a lot of early training to, to dig into ritual tech and, and uh, kind of get a good view of, of how ritual works in at least some forms of the craft. Hmm. So that's kind of my basic introduction. Uh, a little bit of throw me in the deep end. Yeah. Because uh, they were turning to me too saying, well, what do you think? And I was not sure what to think yet. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'd done a few rituals with them, so I tried to participate. It was a non-hierarchical group that really relied on participation. And that's been one of the best group formats uh, for me ever since. Uh, Beachfire Coven, to the extent it can be, it operates in a non-hierarchical manner with its members. Uh, but after we started that way, our, our members asked um, my my spouse and I to, to formally be high priest and high priestess of the coven to help resolve problems that might come up or to provide some other forms of leadership. So um, nice. we're a little bit of a hybrid in that regard now, but we still rely deeply on having uh, a very um, non-hierarchical and cooperative model of how to run the coven and make decisions for what we're going to try and do. Wow. That was uh, very interesting uh, on your start of your path. I hadn't realized that you and I have some similarities on uh, some aspects, but uh, not ones I want to go into right now. I, you mentioned that you and your spouse are both high priest and high priestess. So uh, we had had breakfast a little while ago, and I had asked about if your spouse was also pagan. Um, I didn't realize that she was the high priestess in your uh, coven as well, so that's that's interesting. She was one of the two people I initially met in that encounter I just described. Oh, awesome. Too, so. I had a feeling. Okay. Like, oh, okay. That, that's very cool. Um, moving forward, uh, you also had mentioned that early on you chose your name. Kanu, and uh, we heard a little bit of your description during breakfast. Yeah, I'm curious if you'd be willing to share the history of the name with our listeners as well. Sure. Um, you know, as a part of joining the Navigator's Lodge, um, they did uh, 
indicate that if I wanted to do some training, that, mm -hmm. that they would share that with me. Most of it would be based on the Georgian trad, but a little more open in terms of um, the, their approach to it since they weren't strictly organized as a Georgian coven. Um, one of the things that they expressed to me was that it could be very important to choose a magical name, uh, gave me some of the rationales about why, and I kind of went off to think about it a little bit. Um, in, my, in my mundane life, my surname is very Welsh. And so uh, as I was starting to say, well, what would kind of speak to me or represent me in a magical way? Um, I've always had a, a deep um, interest in a family and uh, somewhat in genealogy and things like that. So that was at least one of the things on my mind. And I went over to the library and was kind of hunting around and thinking, what, you know, maybe I can find something interesting here. And I found on the shelf... Um, an English Welsh Welsh English dictionary and I actually just was looking through Welsh words uh, seeing if there was something that that might kind of come out to me uh, that I could check on and kind of say well and as I was zipping through for whatever reason uh, this one jumped out at me and while um, well I think the the Welsh pronunciation would be different um, I'm, I'm seeing the word Kanu or C-A-N-U on the page and it meant sing and while I don't do that frequently, uh, or I'm not a performer uh, in, in any sense, um, singing has been a part of one of my ritual skills. And one of the things that um, I enjoy being able to offer from time to time um, in my magical life. And I also thought it was representative of an expressive energy that um, I was real comfortable with as a magical name. So. Um, I, I, I trialed it out in uh, one of my next uh, gatherings and in going through the, um, the early processes with the Navigator's Lodge that there was an opportunity to basically choose a magical name and ritual um, and I was comfortable enough with it to choose it then and this really stuck with me over the years. Um, I think that's probably the way I'm um, predominantly known in the pagan community. So, curious, which came first, Beachfire Coven or membership of COG? Well, I was a member of COG before Beachfire Coven was formed. Okay. Um, when I was doing some grad school uh, up in the Northeast, um, the, uh, I was traveling down to Connecticut uh, to participate in a coven there, um, known as Ouroboros Isisnosis. That coven was formed out of two study groups. One was named Ouroboros, the other was named Isisnosis, that had been started by Beth Bone Blossom when she came over from California and lived in the Northeast for a bit. And the, the kind of carrying on people from those two study groups formed a coven, and it had joined COG. Um, they had had a member who was their primary COG contact and did almost all the interaction with COG. And about three months before I joined, I think if I recall correctly, I was told that she moved down to Maryland. And so the coven was just doing their own coven things. And almost a year later, uh, when we were together one time, somebody said, and I didn't know anything about this until this point, are, are, we, are we members of COG or something, right? Um, it was something that she did and she moved, and I guess we never really asked her what, is there something we're supposed to do <laughs> as members of COG? And so, um, you know, my partner Raina and I both said, well, well, we'll see if we can find out. And at the time, there was a Northeast Local Council of COG 
so we found out about it. We found out about an upcoming meeting, and we decided to go. So we drove over to the Nelcog meeting, um, and uh, the, the folks there were like, wow, uh, great to see you. We didn't know what happened. We haven't heard from you guys in a while. Um, you were provisional uh, as terms of membership status because you missed some stuff, but uh, if you want to keep participating, it's good to see you, right? And we said, yeah, uh, yeah uh, okay, great. And uh, had an interesting time because at the very first meeting, I saw Michael Thorne and Judy Harrow get into a good row uh, about something. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, people are really pretty energetic about this. Uh, and it wasn't too dismaying. I think most of the meeting was actually quite constructive. Um, but it was a little bit of a standout of meeting some people who were already long-time COG members and very well-known in the Northeast Pagan community that I was just starting to get to know. Um, to see them kind of go at it with each other a little bit. But that was my introduction to COG. And I would say it would fall probably in the range of around 1990, 1991. Um, oh, wow. And uh, so our Coven War members... We became kind of the most active representatives to COG for them then, but um, when uh, grad school ended and we moved back to Florida, um, where we met in college, um, I ended up landing a job in Tallahassee, and we moved there, and um, there weren't other COG members. There was a Dogwood local council, and so uh, we joined as solitaries in Dogwood at the time. Okay. Um, that was covering Georgia, Florida, and Alabama then. And after a couple of years in Tallahassee, um, we joined a coven and then asked the coven to consider joining COG. So uh, we went up to Dogwood's annual meeting north of Atlanta and offered to put on main ritual for them. And as a matter of introducing the coven to COG, um, a number of them knew Rain and I already, but um, they didn't know anybody else and nobody else in our coven really knew COG. So it was a weekend gathering where we were able to um, have our coven get to know COG and COG get to know our coven a little better and um, we had some um, nice reactions to doing main ritual for them um, so this is a little bit of a sideline I guess but one of the things that has been um, um, a market introduction at times for me to people that may not know much about magical name or other things is that from time to time I'll write an invocation or a chant that's done in song and we'd ask the folks um, on the land if there were deities that they worked with regularly and they had said Caridwin and Hearn. So I'd written a Hearn invocation that I was able to do in, with about 75 people in this natural amphitheater on the land um, that is a really resonant piece, you know. Um, so, uh, and that was the first time I'd done it in public, but uh, I rolled it out in a practice ritual before we went up there, a little walkthrough, because I put myself under the gun to try and have it ready by our walkthrough. Um, so I wanted to be comfortable with it when we went up there. And um, the priestess for the ritual, Diana, wasn't, uh, did not have an invocation ready, but she was working on one, uh, or would, would have one ready that was really beautiful for the ritual. Uh, but we got through the walkthrough to the point about doing an invocation. I said, well, we kind of got something worked up, so I'd like to try it while we're here. And after I did the invocation, Diana turned to me and said, shit, I've got some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from her, as she is a performer, um, uh, she's been a long-term stage performer and everything, um, I took that as a high compliment, and um, it, it gave me a little more confidence that if I rolled it out up at the annual meeting that it would go well. Um, there's a little bit about me and a little bit about our continuation in COG. Um, after about seven years in Tallahassee, we moved down to the Miami area, 
and we'd already known um, some other COG members mm -hmm. um, from Dogwood who lived down there, and we were approached. Um, uh, we didn't immediately form Beachfire Coven when we moved to Miami, but shortly thereafter. Okay. And uh, when we had, we were approached about whether or not we would be interested in helping form a local council of COG in the South Florida area, because it was a long ways from Atlanta. Um, in terms of just drive right. time and there wasn't a whole lot of local in the local council there because of their geographic spread so unless you were in the Atlanta area and uh, a member there and even then um, some of like the unicorn um, trad community and stuff was doing a lot of events already so there wasn't a lot of events that were just kind of cog events um, and so we um, ended up forming our own local council of cog which is now known as Everglades Moon Local Council and what year did Everglades establish? Sorry to put you on the point there. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, I'm not so much of a historian, I guess, although I was there for it, and I should know. I'm just trying but, to remember if, um, if it's when I think it got, was. but uh, We got started in the early 2000s. Okay. So I think around 2002 or three. I know, um, I believe we hosted Mary Meeton around 2005, but... Yeah. Um, but at any rate, we... No, you guys hosted in 06. 06, okay. Yeah, because the following year in 07, we were at the University of Massachusetts. Ah, right, yep. So, right out, so I was uh, first officer before Grand Council up there in Amherst. Yeah. So. Well, you were first officer my first year for sure, uh, which was 2004 to 2005, if I remember. But... Um, uh, yeah, because I my group had joined in, um, I think, oh, three was when my uh, first group, because I'm now in my second group that is COG members. So my membership is through my coven. So, I, you know, I've had the pleasure to meet people who, you know, have been with COG a lot longer than I have. Um, I think at this stage, um, I would say, though, at least I'm a, I'm a long-time COG member. A lot longer than I even realized. That's you're almost at thirty years now. That's uh, pretty awesome. I didn't realize that you guys have been members that long. It actually makes a little more sense though, um, in my head. Okay, so I always thought that maybe you were from Florida. So where are you actually from? Uh, when people ask me that, and I start to kind of go, well, I was. Um, uh, the, uh, a lot of times, if they're military, they say military, and I say, "Oh." I say, "No, IBM." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My dad worked for IBM, otherwise known as I've been moved. Oh. Uh -huh. um, so, uh, I was uh, born up in the Woodstock, New York area, and um, lived in two different places uh, up in the Catskills near there um, for about ten years together, up and together, and then um, moved to Maryland, London, uh, back to the Catskills. Um, as I began high school, and then down to Tampa. Um, was an exchange student to Bolivia for the summer during my high school period. Okay. Spent a year in college in Ohio, and then came back to Florida to um, to go to college there and finish my time in college there. So um, I took a couple years off after graduating college to kind of figure out what was up next. Um, and in that time frame, uh, spent some time in South Carolina in the Myrtle Beach area where my dad's from, and there, he wasn't living there at the time, but I've got a lot of family there. And uh, As my dad likes to say, um, we've been poor whites in South Carolina for about 250 years. Uh, <laughs> and uh, So it was good to, 
to spend some time there close to extended family. Um, and then I moved to Boston, lived with some college friends of mine, kind of figured out next steps, and um, decided that I wanted to pursue environmental law. So I uh, got in, admitted to uh, a really good school for that, uh, Vermont Law, up in Vermont. Okay. Um, and I spent three years there uh, doing uh, my JD and a master's, master of studies in environmental law. Uh, and then uh, intended to come back to Florida, so moved down to uh, Sarasota, lived with my, my father-in-law for a summer while uh, Raina was on dig, uh, since she's an archaeologist, mm-hmm. um, in an old cracker house with no air conditioning, and put irons in the fire looking for work. And by the end of the summer, I landed my first career job. Um, so I, I got a job working for the public doing environmental law. and. Professionally, that's what I've been doing since, and I think it's a real honor to help uh, represent uh, public environmental agencies and to um, help carry out enforcement when necessary to try and uh, help protect the environment or to uh, get folks to make things right. That's very cool. So it's a little bit about where I'm from and a little more about where where I went. Yeah, I had no idea, but it makes okay. So anytime I talk to you. Every time I talk to various members of COG, I can kind of generally pick out where they're from based off of the way they say things. They're either, if they have an accent, but also the words they choose to use. Pretty good at that. And I had always thought it never really felt like you sounded like you were from Florida, and now I understand why. So, I didn't know that. But cool. I wasn't sure if you want to know if I was from London or not, but I should try to be. It's a long time ago. <laughs> but just really passed through. wasn't there for long. Actually, that one more Australian there for a second. Yeah, yeah. No, but, uh, it's been a long time since I, since I lived there. It was um, in the late 70s. So for me, it was junior high uh, during the height of the punk era. Oh. And it was a really interesting time to live in London. I bet. So, uh, Some great music from that time. Yeah. Uh, so continuing on with uh, environmental work and elements like that, uh, I understand you are a beekeeper as well. Yes. Um, Rain's wanted to do beekeeping for a long time. Okay. And I was interested. Um, uh, she was the, the real in- impetus uh, to explore it. And um, in the Miami area where we lived, in our town, initially uh, I inquired about it. Uh, and as a lawyer for the public, uh, I want to turn do everything above board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no upside for me for skirting, uh, you know, even what somebody might consider minor laws. Mm-hmm. So uh, I asked the town uh, or city, and they said, uh, well, we don't really have a zoning code for that, so we default to the counties. And mm-hmm. Miami-Dade County has a lot of ag land still, um, although a lot has been redeveloped in my time there even. So their approach to beekeeping was really commercial scale stuff. They said you'd have to have five acres owned agricultural to be able to be a beekeeper. Uh, To have bees in Miami Springs and there's no five acre lands owned agricultural, much less our place. And I knew that there had been a lot more urban and suburban beekeeping going on um, at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was, we made that inquiry probably around 2010-11 and at the time uh, we didn't try and go see if we could get the zoning uh, local zoning established uh, to allow for it but we were still interested 
And a couple years later, the state of Florida actually passed a law that preempted all the local zoning codes in Florida and established a single system for beekeeping registration and um, conditions all around the state. And so even smaller properties at that point could do uh, some level of beekeeping. In our area of Florida, we get keep up to three colonies of bees on the, our property um, with some basic conditions to try and make sure that they're not a nuisance to neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to um, start um, beekeeping uh, about three years ago now. Um, there's some other, uh, other pagan friends of ours in the community that are beekeepers, and uh, we were able to uh, pick up a couple of caught swarms from them. And uh, we've already done some training. There's a our agricultural extension office offers some training occasionally in beekeeping uh, called Bee College. And so <laughs> it's just a weekend, but we went for weekend training and, um, you know, read up on it uh, extensively because we realized it's something we could do now. And then by the time we'd done about a year worth of kind of front end work and bought some equipment so we could uh, get bees home, um, I had the opportunity to pick up well, one swarm and then a little later in the year another swarm from. Um, from other pagan beekeeper friends of ours. So uh, I, I dutifully drove my Camry up there and uh, with a small a small hive called a nucleus box, we moved the frames over from their small nucleus box where the colony was beginning to develop into mine, um, left it alone until just after uh, sunset where uh, the foragers had, would have come back for the most part. And we closed the entrance off and I brought it over and packed it up in my car, seat belted it in. Um, and would you know headed off to drive home and it's kind of been hilarious because people are like you put them in your car <laughs> <laughs> but 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 and I'm like they were all caged in I was like okay you know it's closed and everything and I'm like, but what if there's like an accident or what if you get like pulled over or something I said well look if the bees get out for any reason um, I get out of the car I open my trunk where my bee suit is because I, I had a full bee suit with me I put it on and I get back in the car and you know a couple of bees might escape as I get in and out but otherwise they'll come home and I'll you know, get the colony out at the other end, and it, you know, uh, and so we all had a couple of good laughs of picturing me driving along. And what if I get pulled over that way too? <laughs> can't roll down the window. Really can't roll down the window, officer, right now. But the the trips home have been smooth. Uh, the, the, nothing's ever gone wrong. I've brought three colonies home now that way. Uh, but yes. people get a little bit of a laugh out of it. But um, I think from a little bit of the pagan perspective on beekeeping. Um, it's been something that's really interesting. Bees have uh, really uh, lend their own energy to uh, to the yard, to area. Um, we have had a vegetable garden at times during our beekeeping. We've uh, maintained an herb garden. We've got a number of fruit trees in the yard that all really benefit from the pollination. And um, bees forage out to two, three miles. So in some ways it's really um, a benefit to the neighborhood. Uh, I know of one other registered beekeeper in our um, city, um, so there's just a couple of us, and I'm sure all the you know mango and avocado and plantain and banana and you know citrus and other things that they might um, forage off of um, benefit or, you know the whole neighborhood in some ways. Uh, and like I said, they have a kind of particular energy, and in beekeeping itself, um, it's very constructive to keep. An extremely calm approach when you're working with a colony to do an inspection um, and see what's going on with them to both disturb them the least and to you know not set off their defensive reactions as much um, some mm -hmm. people are really concerned about bees being aggressive 
for the most part, they're just defensive. Mm. So I think um, that's the same with most animals in the wild, but not always, but usually. Yeah, and we usually say they're they're more work than a goldfish and less than a dog, because um, you don't have to take your bees out for a walk. Um, they walk themselves. They feed themselves. <laughs> um, so for the most part, and you know, if you can maintain a, a home for them that's relatively healthy, um, that, that's a, a really a great. I think a great endeavor and a good thing to do because uh, the bee population has had some challenges yeah and um, the way you can manage colonies at a small scale like that um, can be healthier for the feral bees in the area to interact with than commercial beekeeping which puts a lot of stresses on bees and some of the practices of treating hives can tend to um, lead to uh, stronger pests and diseases over time mm -hmm. uh, the ones that might be resistant to treatment you know, then um, are more of a challenge to deal with over time. And it minimizes some of the um, learned behaviors and shared behaviors that bees can pass on to each other if they're not dealing with pests and diseases directly themselves. So um, sometimes people call that the, the James Bond method, live and let die, uh, rather than do a lot of interventions in the hive to try and um, deal with pests and diseases. Uh, and I know a lot of pagan beekeepers that do do some interventions in their hives. Um, we're pretty minimal on that end because we we think it's best for the bee colony mm -hmm. and for our interaction with feral colonies to try and um, have the healthiest bees possible with the best um, hygienic behavior for themselves and the best chance of survival outside of what we would do for them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really neat. Um, in one of my other practices, fairy seership, um, there are three totem animals that represent the surface world, the underworld, and the star world. And the bees are the totem animal for the star world. So the, the kind of vibration that they represent for me, uh, you know, physically that they cause, the energy that they lend to the yard and other things, is associated uh, uh, for me a bit with that magical practice. Um, and uh, since my name is Kanu, um, that energy and uh, some of the other sounds that the hive makes, like the queen actually sings uh, at times, uh, are kind of a nice little confluence of, of, of some elements of my paganism. Um, and one of the things I've observed that uh, from something that's not entirely just a magical perspective, so it's one of the more fundamental, I think fundamentally strong um, ways to look at beekeeping is um, uh, beekeep, uh, not beekeeping itself, but actually um, bees and bee colonies are kind of our original natural solar panels mm -hmm. uh, because the plants that they forage off of receive and turn sunlight into a form of stored energy that they collect and uh, make available for their own colony and when managed I think in a cooperative manner it doesn't harm them to to share it right and so um, honey you know uh, a lot of it's kind of golden some of it's a little dark but one of my perspectives on it is it really is um, solar energy mm -hmm. that is stored, uh, potentially stable in stable form for thousands of years. Uh, it's a really interesting magical perspective on bees and beekeeping mm -hmm. too, I think. And it tends to also make me uh, deeply appreciative and, and careful about my involvement in that process. Mm -hmm. Because I think I, I should extend it the utmost respect.
So, you mentioned the Fairy Seership Program. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you get involved, and how long have you been involved with it? Um, uh, been involved about 10 years, um, directly. I was invited to join the first uh, Florida group uh, or hosting that was formed, which was one of the earliest after some um, original folks in Maryland working with Orion were um, involved with the initial development of fairy seership training. And when you mention Orion, you mean Orion, Orion Foxwood. Foxwood. Yeah, <laughs> Orion Foxwood. Um, basically, um, Orion had, had worked with some folks in Maryland and uh, as he was developing uh, fairy seership practices and uh, discovering them and researching more about it. Um, the first Florida group, I think, was one of the first other groups formed. And at the time, um, Rain and I couldn't um, join it. Our kids were really young, and our, our time commitments, just as a practical matter, we looked at what it would take. And while it's not a, a long time commitment or, or super frequent, it was going to be a couple times a year, we couldn't see how we could juggle it for us both to do it. Mm. And we didn't want to make the choice to that just one of us would go and do it um, at the time as well. So um, we didn't join, uh, but we thank um, thank the the organizer of that hosting for the invitation because um, I think it was extended to us um, as a compliment that that we'd be invited to to that training. Um, she valued it a lot, and um, I, I think it was a nice compliment to be offered. Um, so when a second group was going to form, actually, she came around again and said, well, you know, we're going to try again, you know, do a new group. So are you ready? And, and we said yes. Um, so around 2009, I think the first group formed in maybe 2005 in Florida. And we knew a, lot of, a number of those people as friends, not every one of them, but there were people coming over from the east coast of Florida to the hosting, which was held on the west coast. And um, so as we picked up with the second group, I think had a very positive reaction to fairy seership training. Um, it was something that really complemented or supplemented a lot of the other practices I've been involved with over the years, which are pretty diverse already. Um, you know, I've had Georgian training. Um, the uh, coming up in Connecticut I mentioned was based on reclaiming teachings. Um, I'd had some ceremonial magic, uh, magical lodge exposure, and. Uh, in Miami, uh, I've been invited to join Nambukumi House there. Uh, while I was in Tallahassee, um, we were invited to come out for on a regular basis to the Creek, uh, what you call the Creek Indian Square Grounds for ceremonies. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I felt very fortunate um, to be invited to participate in a lot of trads uh, or a lot of various kinds of magical um, and spiritual beliefs and practices. Um, and th this was one that I, I also have been honored to, to be able to be involved with, so. Um. Nice. Well, very cool, I did not know that you were a part of the fairy seership, which. Oh, yeah, there are so many of us. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm starting to see that there's a lot more people cross-grouped in things like that, which is. A lot of crossover, yeah. yeah well, fortunately, the first rule of fairy seership is don't talk about fairy seership. Uh, <laughs> Orion has been been pretty open when he thinks um, people are comfortable uh, with it to be able to share some of the practices in our mm -hmm. communities and um, I'm grateful for that because I think some of the experiences we've had with um, 
the, the fairytale training are just fundamentally really solid and good techniques. And so, um, Raina and I uh, were the first folks to do a fairytale hospitality suite at Pantheacon, okay. and uh, with help from a number of other people, which is we're really grateful for. We were able to have a small program of events, a place for um, very social people out of Pantheacon for those years to get together with each other, stop in, stop by, uh, and to have a place to help um, answer some questions for people because you know the hospitality suites there uh, can get mobbed on uh, a couple of evenings mm -hmm. with people who either want to see what you have to offer or are curious about who the heck you are yeah. um, or what this group is about. So. Um, it was a real pleasure to be able to do things like do a very Searship 101 up in the suite. And I felt a little trepidation about it because I hadn't done anything like that before and I didn't know if any of the other Searship apprentices had really gone to a festival and done a, um, a talk or anything on this is what Searship's about. Um, but I got some positive feedback and support from Orion for doing that. And uh, so we were really happy to be able to do it for a couple of years. We just can't get out to Pentheacon uh, as often as we'd like. Sure. And uh, understood. So for, fortunately, some other people were able to carry that on for some years, too. Okay, um, so you brought it up. So now I have to ask you to share the ribbon story. Okay. So in planning for the first Fairy Searship Suite, I'd already been to Pentheacon before. So I was familiar with the practice of many of the suites or vendors or uh, workshops Having Even just random people too. Having printed ribbons uh, that are somehow associated with their workshop, their suite, their vending, whatever, uh, to put on the ID cards to kind of the name badge. these long changes. Yeah. yeah, these name badge. Name badges were adorned with these long trails of. There were people that were wearing like togas. Yeah. And uh, and so you know I was very clear that there's a, a tradition uh, at that gathering of. of that being one of the ways in which people represented themselves out to the festival and that people enjoyed as a token of their experience uh, with various parts of it. So I was kind of racking my brain a little bit, thinking I, we should really have something. And in Fraysership, at least within our community, it's pretty well known that since Orion has a southern accent, that one of the fundamental first techniques that he teaches or you learn is called opening the well. And uh, so when he would say, what we're going to do, though, it would come out like open the whale. Um, and so it's a very small jump to, to, to uh, open the whale. And basically, I don't know of a sister group that doesn't laugh about that. And Orion, I think, takes it very well. Uh, so I just had to picture, well, maybe one of the things I could have on that ribbon is open the whale. It's spelled W-H-A-L-E with a nice exclamation mark on it. Because it would be a little bit of an inside joke, and if people got to know very Searship at all, they could quickly associate it um, with something that we all took in a lighthearted manner, but was associated with one of the basic practices of Searship, too. I didn't let Orion know I was doing this. <laughs> so I, I'd ordered a couple hundred and, um, and, and brought them with me, and when I arrived, uh, literally I was packing my bags into the hotel, and he was um, doing a talk um, well, actually on a panel with other authors at the time and uh, I saw it in the hall as I passed and I came back down before it wrapped up so that I could potentially see him when he came out and I had some of them with me so he you know had a little chat with other people and stuff and he made his way out into the hall and 
we had a nice greeting and um, he confirmed, yep, we're doing the very searship suite and I told him where it was. And I said, well, but hang on though, I've got something for you. And he really had no idea what was coming. So I handed him one of these printed ribbons and he looked at it and his face was absolutely priceless. Uh, I, had, I, I wasn't exactly sure it was your actual income, but he was like speechless for a moment. And then he goes, oh my God, oh, oh my God, oh my God. And I, she was, uh, do you have one I could give my publisher and stuff like that too? And I said, of course. I handed him a handful of them. I said, you know, they're going to be available, you know, as ribbons are all around here for, for people to the fairy searship suite or to get them to potentially come over to the suite. So here's have a bunch of them to hand out. And he laughed about it. Um, so yeah, that year was, was the first year where they were open the wild ribbons at Pantheacon. And, That's uh, so awesome. I'm glad, it, I'm glad the presentation to him went well, because if it didn't, I just wouldn't pass about. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the other fairy seers, too, that didn't know about it, because I kind of kept it under wraps, thought it was also... Um, hilarious. Yeah, uh, really hilarious. And uh, luckily, we're, we're not so serious with each other. You know, this is not a um, somehow fundamentally solemn trad, although, or practice, although a lot of the, the practices within it are... Um, sometimes meditative or with subtle energy work and um, trying to get ourselves grounded and centered enough to be attuned mm -hmm. to subtle energies and not just some of the, the big show dramatic stuff. Um, but it was appropriate, I think, because it was all part of all of our series that I knew, um, relations with Orion, that this was um, kind of the inside joke. It's um, it's one of my favorite stories, actually. Within Fairy Seers, you also do these amazing carvings that I've seen. Tell us a little bit about that. How did that come to be? And what is it you're doing? Um, well, I do some um, bone and antler carving. Um, so there's a couple of uh, principal things that got me started. Uh, initially, I wanted to get a gift for a friend who was really into Hecate. And uh, so I was kind of searching around for, um, see if I could find a cool skeleton key. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of keys already. And so I figured, for some reason, my thought was try and get her that as a gift, even though it might be a challenge to find one that I thought was kind of cool enough to be a gift and not just, eh, okay, she get another key. Um, <laughs> even though she loves keys, but I was kind of like, I don't really want it to be a run-of-the-mill key. I was having trouble finding something that I really thought was a standout. And so I kind of stepped back a little bit and I said, okay, I may rethink this idea. What would make a really cool skeleton key? Like, let's just start from fresh here. I thought, ooh, skeleton bone key would be really kind of cool. And I don't really see those. Right. Um, at least I don't remember seeing one. So I did a little searching. It was hard to find things. I found some stuff that was really kludgy. Mm. Uh, that I wouldn't want to buy and give as a gift. And I found one that I thought looked pretty nice, which had already been sold through an eBay vendor, and the store person didn't make it themselves. It was from a friend and kind of a one-off. So I figured maybe I need to try to make one, even though I wasn't really prepared, and I never thought of myself as particularly artistic with my hands. Um, I've got about a good Crayola crayon level of drawing skill, um, and uh, but I figured, well, I'll try. So I actually went down to my local market to the meat counter and said, "Do you have any bone, like big pieces of bone left over from cutting down meats?" 
And they said, well, like for your dog or something? And I said, um, not really. Um, but that kind of idea. I said, actually, I want to take, you know, see whether I could do some bone carving. So I figured I'd just see what you had to get a piece of bone to start working with. So I took it home and, you know, boiled it and cleaned it out and sterilized it and started cutting it down. I had a Dremel tool and, um, uh, it was hard to get flat pieces out of kind of a, mostly what was like bone knuckle stuff almost of the little off of it. But I kind of roughed out some stuff and thought, hmm, okay, um, at least practically speaking, I could try this. And I carved a bone skeleton key that I gave as a gift. And um, the other people who saw it kind of went, wow, can I get one of those? And um, I haven't done a lot of it, but I, I did kind of develop a little more of a workshop for that kind of carving and, and got um, known mostly, in, I think, in the Fraysership community and then in my local community for being able to, to carve bone skeleton keys. Um, now, that's kind of one of the, the basic, like, development of the in, interest or skill. kind of came from a need mm -hmm. uh, and an interest in giving somebody a gift. Um, when I realized that I could carve a bone skeleton key that didn't look like it was one of my Crayola crayon drawings <laughs> and that might look a little nicer than that, um, I had realized and recalled from working with Orion in training and in having um, him do readings that one of the tools that he used that he associates really directly with seership um, is a set of um, antler pieces with the glyphs for each of what are called in free seership the vision keys and he called those antlers with the carved glyphs on them keystones Mm. Um, so there's a divinatory technique that he does uh, for readings with people using these keystones and um, I had always thought well, you know maybe sometime in the development of training other people would be well trained enough that he would be open to other people using this technique but um, wouldn't know where I'd get a set like that, right? Right. Um, and he told me that the person who produced them um, made them for him and said, I'm never going to do that again <laughs> because it was difficult to work with it and, and, and it wasn't his normal medium. Oh, okay. But, uh, but he did them for Orion. And so I also kind of realized that there wasn't anybody making these things and nobody I knew at the time I first thought about it necessarily was, was ready for that part of training or open to it but as I carved some bone I figured maybe the the house because we refer to our community as the house of Brie uh, which is um, Orion's um, fairy contact and fairy wife uh, but maybe other people in the house could need somebody who could do this yes um, so maybe both for me personally uh, when I was ready but maybe for some of the other advanced seers could already be ready for it but don't really have easy access to uh, having that tool available so um, since I kind of been able to carve some bone I decided I'd hunt around and order up some antler and um, I had some elk antler shed elk antler um, shipped over to me from Washington State um, cut it down and did my best to make a draft set just to kind of see if I could do it um, again I wasn't confident and never worked with antler before um, but I, I kind of made the foray and um, I 
remembered that his set was mainly kind of white antler with the glyphs then etched uh, or emphasized in dark. Mm-hmm. Um, the antler I initially got was elk because I kind of have a personal affiliation with deer and um, and one of the ones that seems particularly resonant for me is elk. So that's why I ordered elk antler. And when I got it, of course, duh, I realized it's got a very dark outer layer, very knobby too. Yeah. Um, that was going to be hard to carve in. But I realized that if I could carve through it for the glyphs that I'd have, instead of a light antler with a dark one, I'd have a dark outer part of the antler with the glyphs highlighted in, in white, kind of the white bone wall of the antler without having to stain them or necessarily repaint that if it's getting worn off or anything. And I, I just kind of figured I would try that. Uh, and that is a real pain to carve on. Oh. <laughs> I bet. Um, <laughs> real pain to carve on. Even with the Dremel tool? I mean... Well, it's knobby. So trying to carve a fine line with a small bit on the end of a Dremel or another similar tool, mm-hmm. it's hard to keep the line you want to carve when the surface is going up and down a lot and it's sure. very hard. So it took a lot of patience. Similar to the calm approach I need with the bees. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I started this before I, I had bee colonies. So it took a lot of patience to... to do the initial carving of those glyphs and the really rough. And as it got uh, a little bit of a line carved in, I could use more pressure and, um, and, and kind of clarify the line if it wandered a little from what I wanted. And there were pieces, of course, that just got a little ruined because um, stuff happens. happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I roughed out a set and I took a photo of it and I sent it to Orion to, to basically say, um, I think he knew I was going to try already, but to say, uh, this is what I was able to do if it's something that he was comfortable with uh, me doing for um, either myself or for other seers that that he would be able to tell me were ready if they weren't able to do it themselves. Um, and he had a very positive reaction. Um, you know, since then I've done a number of sets for advanced seers that he's indicated are ready to have that kind of training or to have that kind of tool available and for me early on it also meant that I think I spent more time with the glyphs of the vision keys than a lot of other seership apprentices did. Those glyphs appear on the back of the original card set that came with the first um, fairy teachings book and um, a lot of the used books that are available don't have the set of cards with them anymore. but the card backs are where the glyphs are represented along with it in the chapter pages. Um, so what I've done was generally follow the glyphs from the back of the first original vision key cards as my model for what they should look like. Okay. And, um, and I guess because they were the card backs and they just kind of were a picture in the book, a lot of people worked with the front of the cards and the imagery for the, the vision keys themselves, which make up the tree of enchantment. Um, but they, they paid attention to that art more than the back of the card, you know, which is kind of understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started developing, um, I think, a, a different kind of um, working relationship with the glyphs than I'd had before. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the workshops I've given at a very seership gathering was literally just about the glyphs. I had printouts of them that were, weren't huge, but about eight and a half by 11 each and laid them out in the pattern of the Tree of Enchantment on the floor and use the workshop to talk about the glyphs and what you could see in them and 
kind of what you could understand about a vision key from them that might uh, be a little bit different than just looking at the artwork from the front. Um, so it's become an interesting process for me too and another avenue of kind of access to some of the basics of, of Searship. That's pretty cool. And I know that our Fairy Searship group really appreciates the work and effort that you've done in creating these for everyone. Well, thanks. I think some of the things I'm grateful for actually are people who have called me up and said, or contacted me otherwise and said, I want to try making them myself. Can you help me understand what you do? Because I think it's great in any kind of magical process uh, for someone to be as involved as they can in making magical tools. Um, I'm certainly not opposed. I've purchased magical tools and things that you know I think are appropriate for work, and they're they're plenty good tools, right? Mm -hmm. um, but your relationship with a tool in the long term is always a little different if you were the more involved with its creation that you can be. Um, so, you know, I've had a friend come over to what I call the boneyard, um, where my workshop is, to try out a little bone and antler carving to see whether or not she might be able to make her own set. Sure. And um, I've been honored to make sets for people, a number of them now, for some of the advanced um, Searship students. Uh, but a couple folks from the West Coast have, you know, called me up and I actually did a little bit of a, a video conference with, with one of them in the, in the boneyard to help show her um, uh, beyond what I could just describe in words, kind of here's, here's what I do, here's what my materials look like, here's what my tools look like. Mm -hmm. um, I burned through a couple of Dremels before deciding that I would get um, what's called a flex shaft tool which is used by a number of woodworkers and jewelers and things like that. Okay. So the motor hangs separately from the, oh, yeah, the yeah. handle. Right. right. A lot of people see them, but they don't. Using the term, people are like, I don't know what you're talking about exactly. But um, I've got a handle that'll take like any Dremel bit and is lighter and smaller than a Dremel itself. Right. So it's a little easier to work with on longer projects. And the motor is a little more durable than the Dremels I've had in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I've been able, it's really been interesting to be able to um, share a little bit with others. Uh, and there are a couple of other seers that have worked on making their own sets, and I, I really enjoy seeing them. You know, it's, I, I don't know why, I mean, I think some people would be concerned about making their own set almost, because they're like, well, Kanu makes those, you know? <laughs> and Orion says that's great, and Kanu can make them right. So, Here's uh, the bar, can I meet this bar? Well, maybe not so much as well. Maybe you have feeling like they're offending him and trying to mimic him, maybe. Yeah, I don't know what the what concerns are, but I've heard a couple of people be kind of sheepish about thinking about making their own, like, and I just told them, I had no idea whether I could make them. I just tried. Right. right? And and because of the way I view, you know, um, at least the, the possible benefits of making your own tool in this regard, um, maybe especially one that you're going to do divinatory work with, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I think it's really cool for people to to try and see what they can do and the sets I've seen are all cool and different than mine and you know I've got a couple ideas about trying different approaches as well uh, to, to making um, keystone sets myself um, so the set I've kept and worked with was actually that set that I thought was a draft like a, tr a rough draft try it, I mean I was more connected with that set because mm -hmm. this was my first attempt this was my, my first like concerted attention and time on this kind of thing and they never really 
lost that energy even though in my brain I was giving myself the kind of out of going I don't know how it's going to go I don't know but I was working with my third contact mm-hmm. trying to really be prepared um, just like you might do if you were you know going to sit down at a potting wheel where you know you don't just throw your hands at it and you know on an ungrounded way to basically do pottery you know you need to kind of whether you think of it this way or not you kind of ground and center a little bit to be before you touch the clay to be ready because right? it's going to be in motion and you need to be in a good space to do it so almost every potter I know whether they're magical or not you know it, it, it is just one of those clear principles where you get yourself ready before you start working with the material to do creation of stuff and that um, little bit of experience I'd had with that was good prep for, for getting myself ready but you know I realized that that was a set that really spoke to me um, and uh, so it's been my main set um, since then I've gotten some other antler um, which doesn't have the dark outer kind of bark like elk does it's a fallow deer and that's a species that um, is prevalent around uh, Hearn's oak in Britain, okay. a location where that oak has been, um, and it is kind of a sacred space for me because even outside of the early invitation to invoke Hearn for our friend's land and our introduction to Cog, um, that was already um, a figure that I've been working with in my uh, my own practice. So that's continued in the long term, and when I had the chance to get some deer antler from a species that's prevalent around Hearn's oak, I thought, oh, that might be great to work with. I wonder wonder what might come of that, you know? <laughs> um, so it's possible that I'll make myself another set at some point, um, or maybe that antler will go to some other projects. So we'll see. But, uh, but you know, I, um, it's been really interesting to work with antler as a, um, just as a material physically. And the reason that um, Orion says that the keystone should be made of antler uh, is because in a magical sense, um, antler pierces the veil between the worlds and in many representations of animals or priests or priestesses over time, antlers are a sign of um, some sort of imbued, um, you know, power or energy um, that is beyond just, uh, you know, I'm the local guy who does the herbs or the local witch who, you know, knows the knows the forest and the and the gardens and can can help you with the things that ail you um not that that's uh i think that's a, a deeply honored tradition of connection with the natural world um but there's something about antler right that comes up in um spiritual traditions and representations around the world mm-hmm. and orion says hey it, pier- it pierces the veil it's a great tool for divinatory work because of that right um, it's featured in quite a lot of Hollywood for that purpose, I think, too. Like, uh, Hollywood's seen what actual uh, witches use, and they're like, oh, well, we can definitely incorporate some of this and not set off too many flags. And the story about Hearn himself, who was a forester for a king, uh, develops in a manner that has him ending up being represented as antlered. Mm. Um, and there's a lot in that story, so we'll go into it now. But um, but basically, for me, it, it also represents a certain um, aspect of uh, kind of a sacrificed king figure mm. that is deeply associated with nature and the the, the basic um, 
forces of the natural world, animal world, and in some ways plant world, although I work with the green man, some more predominantly for, for plant stuff. But both of them represent nature for me in a fundamental way and have been a part of the development of my priesthood. So working with antler for me and for seeing what I do with the fallow deer antler eventually is, is um, I think, something that I'm really grateful for. Um, but again, the people who have contacted me that want to make their own vision keys, it's an honor just to talk to them and say, here's what I did, and to see what the results of their efforts have been so far, because it's really cool. I just get, you know, uh, you know, like, wow, uh, it's great to see somebody else's work in that regard. And, uh, well, and on top of it, knowing that essentially you've inspired them to try and seek a challenge, a challenge that will enhance their spiritual path. You know, so you have a little influence on that, and so, and well, then they go back to you, you know, requesting for the assistance. So, well, it's an honor to me too to to have some positive reactions to the vision key sets I made for other people. You know, I think it's a it is a magical and a sacred task to undertake to make a tool for somebody else like that. And um, while I've um, made the skeleton keys and some other pendants and stuff available to other folks more broadly uh, than the Searship community. Um, you know, one of my commitments to that that path is that I don't make those sets for anybody else. Right? You you have to be somebody that Orion has said is ready for the tool um, because they're not designed to be generally available to the public. Right. And um, fairy seership uh, apprentice. Fairy Seer Apprenticeship Program takes seven years. If you're doing it through with Orion, because it's we meet twice a year. Generally, or you could say, as the as the old uh, TV song goes, right? Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the. The development of um, his teaching and hostings uh, sometimes has, uh, you know, allowed for a longer process in mm -hmm. the training, um, either through uh, just the, uh, I think, the depth at which he um, sometimes chooses to take uh, training of hostings and the influence of teaching and the hostings on him over time. So um, generally the hostings started out with making like a seven-year commitment to, to do do the training um, for us we're still our hosting is still meeting and um, you know still exploring new material uh, for us and you know we're a decade in so right. uh, and I think for Ryan he um, is you know over time with a number of hostings that have developed to be um, pretty advanced hostings that he's also developing the, his own ideas about the teaching and what he can do to continue to have people um, involved with uh, both the hosting or the greater seership community and what else he has to offer them because as a uh, as a practice that has been um, both kind of researched and revealed over time um, it continues to develop and uh, so Orion's relationship with his fairy wife and their communication about what can be offered and what 
you know, should be conveyed for hopefully the positive impact that seership can have on our lives and on the greater world especially mm -hmm. uh, in terms of where our world's going in general um, means that he received some imperatives and um, both kind of either reclaimed or newly revealed material that he continues to um, to add to what he has available to teach so yeah there's a basic commitment for you know, say seven to nine years, and uh, depending upon how some of the modules, you know, go and how long we might spend on a certain vision key as one of the focuses, or material preparing us to go from the surface world to the underworld, or then into the upper world. Right. And um, you know, I've been uh, grateful for it, and uh, look forward to continuing to be involved in the Searship community in, in any way I can. So I kind of realized we, we jumped forward, but one of the reasons that, um, one of the things that we probably should have uh, started with was explain for our listeners, what does it mean to be a fairy seer? Um, I'll do my best with that one. Okay, um, I, I realize it's, I, a, it's a very complicated thing for some folks well, and there's a long involvement. Yeah, I, th I think there's a little bit of background that might help listeners. Um, Fairseership uh, training itself is a, um, a personal and um, in some ways spiritual, although it's not the, these aren't adequate words necessarily for it, uh, introduction to the materials that Orion has developed um, that make up this body of Fairseership. Um, the most basic concept in Fairseership is the tree of enchantment, um, sometimes just known as the tree. Mm -hmm. and. It is a representation of the surface world, underworld, and upper world, uh, the, those worlds' relation to each other, and the basic forces that exist um, in each of those realms and what their functions are. So it's a way of exploring, you know, um, exploring the, a threefold model of life and of the universe, of existence, and how it all works. So that's reflected in a lot of areas of, of fairy seership. Um, the threefold model example. Uh, for instance, some of the early things that we learn are that fairy seership is about attunement, alignment, and agreement as, as processes or, or states that we are seeking to um, be able to be um, exposed to and then learn basically how to almost help generate ourselves, right? The, the practices that he's developed, um, some of them are written in his books, uh, but the experience of them in training certainly goes beyond what you get out of just reading a book. And for our group, which started out relatively small, um, we've had a tight group of people over time. So as we went through um, Modules, which are kind of the word that we use for each of the weekend training sessions, right? Um, we would check in with each other between modules from the beginning about, so how's that affecting you now, right? Um, remember that thing we learned? Did we all remember it the same way? Um, you know, some of the basic techniques that you start out with are breathing techniques that help us do um, attunement, yeah. right? Um, or alignment with our energies between the worlds and 
um, so we would go over those techniques again with each other, trying to say, are we getting it right? Are we forgetting things? Because we all do, right? And reinforce each other's practice um, and share our own experiences because when you ask what what does being kind of a fairy seer mean? Mm -hmm. Essentially, it means a lot of different things for people. Um, encouraging fairy contact and accepting into um, it, accepting the influence of this training and fairy contact on our other practices, our mundane lives, and that is the fundamental thing about what does it mean, right? To explore levels of attunement and alignment and then agreement, which I take that to be when attunement and alignment can be put into effective practice. So drawing on the techniques that we know and our, our fairy contact um, and our community at times to basically enact uh, an influence of our seership training into life. So what of it do we walk out into the world as we go forward? And for each of us, sometimes that's particular kinds of artwork. So we'll, basically one of the things that I think is a, an iteration of my seership is the boneyard work and, and the practice of um, seeing if I can make vision, key, sorry, keystones. Yeah. Um, but I bring it into doing environmental law work at times, or it's cropped up there whether I asked it to or not, you know, um, as a practice rather than as a tradition, you know, or a, a particular, it is a particular kind of training, but it isn't designed to be exclusive. It's designed to affect the way we carry out other aspects of our life, not to be left in a weekend thing that we did right and that as valuable as it was that we kind of go on and then we revisit it the next time we get together I think it's intended and it's best iteration is when we can integrate it into um, expressing agreement in our life with the things that we've learned and the accepting the guidance of not being isolated Right. and where that takes us because some of the earliest and most fundamental training in fairy seership is about the illusion of our isolation from one another from the natural world from the forces of life and death of the underworld and of the star world and um, some of the ways in which we tell ourselves lies that isolate ourselves from each other that it um, leave us at, more at the mercy of what are called some of the dampers, mm -hmm. like you know, like the desire for absolutes, the need to be kind of right about stuff. Um, the illusion of isolation is one of those again, right? So there's a number of forces that we allow to help form ourselves in fundamental ways that are what in our tradition or this tradition we would call a soul cage. Right. Things that lock us there. Sometimes we develop those to protect ourselves, and they're sometimes understandable. But we can fundamentally affect our health and our ability to explore how deeply we can be attuned to the world around us. 
right? How deeply we can be aligned with many aspects of just the the universe, if you want to put it that way, because there's, you know, that's a broad term, but basically taking into account as much of the threefold model and of the, all of the tree of enchantment as possible and of our fairy contact and what we can draw from that, what it offers us, what we can offer it. All these things help us walk into our lives uh, in, in a stronger way. Stronger isn't even maybe the right word, but in in a manner that is more integrative, right? So one of the other um, threefold phrases that are used to describe seership is that it's integrative, um, restorative, and um, co-creative. Mm. So um, again, that kind of matches the attunement, alignment, and agreement, right? It's integrative, and in that it it fights against some of that isolation. And, and fundamentally is based on bringing us into contact with and opening us to contact with um, as broad a set of the fundamental forces of nature, seen and unseen as we can, right? Restorative in the sense that the goal isn't power over anything, it's, it's a growth and the restoration of the original vision that each of us came with, mm-hmm. right? That none of us were brought into this world to be broken, to be necessarily in unnecessary pain, even though there's things that are painful about life, right? That we weren't designed to be less than we can be. And if we can see some of these principles clearly, it is restorative. And being in the steps of being in agreement are also consistent with that co-creative nature. That it's not just about you know, an individual and what we can do and what it does for us. It's about what role can we have if we kind of, you know, take the hands of a fairy contact, if we take the hands of the other uh, spirits of plants and animals of the underworld and of the star world in trying to go forward in our lives. And so there's a whole bunch of different ways in which it plays out uh, for individuals because it's it, it can, it will never um, come out the same way. Sure. Right? Because yeah. the goal then of seership in many ways is the restoration of oneself to its kind of the original vision. Mm-hmm. But in the sense of having a community and having a tradition and having an effect on the world around us, that's true for the earth. Right? Right. That our influence should help the earth walk itself into creation and continue and find ways for it to be better. So one of our perspectives on fairy stewardship, and why I say walking like that, is because we're never done developing and changing and growing. And if we convince ourselves we are, we're hamstringing ourselves into a captured narrative that will never be adequate to what we could do and what we could develop into. And that's also true for the earth. And the better we do on that realm, the better we have as an outcome for everything around us, really. And the reverence for which, you know, that we can hold for the fact that, you know, just like that honey I talked about, Mm -hmm. that we're made from the elements of stars that, you know, fell to earth and or gathered and 
coalesced around and became some of its own being uh, that we then arise from, right? That, that energy falls from the stars, even material elements of it have fallen from or gathered in the earth, and we arise from it. And humanity arises from it over and over and over, right? So that process of continued co-creation is one of those more ultimate goals of what can we do in service to that? What can we do in concert with that? And what can we do to help restore the original vision of what the earth itself can be, um, both in a sense of as a being, mm -hmm. but also as a sense of the collection of a huge um, and beautiful uh, ecology of beings. You know, so the less isolated that we are, the less fearful that we are, the less mm -hmm. outwardly controlling from inside we are, the more we can accept a co-creative relationship that really is is kind of makes up the answer of what is a fairy seer um, so some people you know pursue academics with a new perspective and vigor uh, produce art that they never knew they could before or hadn't made the chance to try uh, it might inform their teaching or their understanding of other traditions and it might be that they feed back into the seership community in forms of you know attempted leadership or um, assistance so that the practices can be um, as well supported and Orion can be as well supported as we can manage. I guess that was a long answer. That was a very long answer, but I... It was a complete answer. Yes. There's a lot of information in fairy seership, so, I mean, I understood why it, you took the scenic route there. I get it. Thank you for the indulgence, because I think the shortest way to answer it would remain... Um, a little too obtuse. It would do it a disservice, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to have some clarification for our listeners. When we say fairies, we're not talking Tinkerbell, are we? You almost made him spit his coffee. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Um, uh, we're not talking about the, the Disney representation. Yeah. Um, as, as beautiful as that can be, and as inspiring as that is to, to quite a few people, um, the way the, the way that seership sees the fae is um, uh, basically really ancient beings some of whom were around in the formation of the earth itself that are um, essential uh, in the mediation mm -hmm. of the creation and ongoing creation of the earth and that humans have and some Fae have the capability of partnership with each other um, that will um, uh, assist us. But the Fae are, are not um, lighthearted uh, Disney animations. Um, there's a number of kinds of Fae. I'm not going to get into a lot of distinctions as a. a, a I already spent a little bit of time on Fae Seriously Fear um, and the elements of it, but um, there's a number of types of Fae. Um, many of whom do not want human contact and whose main purposes or roles are, seem to be their own role with the co-creation of the earth and, and with each other. Um, but some Fae are open to human contact and are interested in and, um, basically a co-creative partnership. Uh, so, but they're not lighthearted. <laughs> um, they're really 
not sure if I've if I've really had to try and describe it before in easy terms. Uh, so uh, I would say that sometimes they are reclusive. They help in, in that co-creative relationship with the earth. They are a part of some of the most um, uh, powerful uh, energies of the natural world, that they embody some of those, help the earth express some of those. And so they, it, you know, they are powerful beings that are not to be trifled with and that very contact means you can be accepted into partnership um, in what can be for many of us a pretty intimate interaction uh, I don't mean to say that in a sexualized way an intimate interaction in terms of I think the depth of interaction okay. and that the, um, the possibilities there are for having an avenue into partnership for co-creation that humans sometimes otherwise would struggle with a lot more. Uh, I can't say it's the only pathway into co-creation. Um, I think that would be pretty arrogant of me, but it's a fundamental one with a set of beings that are available to us. And for them, human beings are essentially able to bridge worlds, um, at least in part or sometimes in ways that they don't naturally. So a partnership allows for um, a broader aspects of co-creation than if there was not a partnership like that. Um, the other set of beings and, and fairy teachings that have that bridging quality are trees. Um, so, which is one of the reasons I think why the tree of enchantment is the tree. Um, and that we have things to learn from trees that are a little different. Not exclusive to nature, but an iteration of it that's really interesting and powerful. Um, so yeah, fairies know um, I, I tend to shy away from trying to be too descriptive so I think that the way that they present to different people um, have a lot to do with what a person can accept or sometimes what our expectations are um, you know so kind of like they might be traveling to um, to see to see somebody that doesn't know them well so how you present an introduction could vary a lot you know how they present to us in ways that we can understand and accept because they don't live the way we do mm -hmm. um, and uh, our impression I think is that um, most of them are very long-lived sounds a little cliche uh, almost from from our pop culture understanding sometimes of certain fae at least but that they're they can be very long-lived they can be associated with individuals in a co-creative partnership or even family lines over time and that they also, outside of our ancestor work, um, allow us a certain level of longer than a single life uh, contact um, uh, at yet another level of um, existence and that we can interact with and that we can learn from. Uh, help us get a little bit out of our heads and our short-term goals and our day-to-day -day needs into encouraging a perspective of uh, what that long-term view might look for uh, ongoing creation. Um, for you. me, um, my contact um, seems to present as the slightly female side of androgynous, not, okay. you know, um, but different people get contact or partnership in different ways. 
Now, for some, it's something they might hear. Some they can, at least in meditative practice, might see. Um, some people just feel an energy. Uh, some people, you know, literally have. Well, there's a variety of, con uh, of ways in which contact presents. So for me, in a meditative state, I can kind of see a figure. Mm -hmm. um, I can feel energy uh, of my contact, and uh, my contact has a particular method uh, at times of um, what I call co-location, because uh, the first time I encountered her during very seriously training didn't seem like the first time I'd encountered her necessarily. Okay. Um, I, I don't know that I understand the history of that real well yet, but there was an immediate familiarity. And she came right up to me really close, looked me in the eyes, and then turned around, and I was sitting, turned around and sat down in me. And was like looking out through my eyes and kind of feeling how my fingers wiggled. And, and I was kind of like, oh, kind of making yourself at home, but not <laughs> a surprising way, but it didn't feel... Um, intrusive. Okay. Um, fortunately, good. <laughs> if yeah. it did, we might have had a weird. different relationship. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting because she does that at different times too. Um, she'd done that when I'm working in the boneyard. Um, did that at one point when I was at a uh, a hearing for my work, doing kind of a <laughs> trial. Um, and so I think it's a way for our partnership to develop um, that she can see things through my eyes a bit and feel things the way I would feel them and for me I can in some level the way she would see things what occurs to her at that time and what it feels like um, so my fairy contact I don't haven't heard a lot of other seers say that that's a part of their interaction with their contact and that's not the only way my contact and I interact um, but at the same initial exposure, um, there's an opportunity during free searchship training for um, potentially a free contact to come forward. Doesn't always happen for, for yeah. people right then, right? But um, when that happened with me, uh, this the, some of that contact started happening ahead of the descriptive narrative that was going on. And um, so for me, it felt familiar and not intrusive again, you know, something that that um, I welcomed and as I talked to other people just seemed to be a little distinctive because um, other fairy seership apprentices that I've explored with, you know, they talk about how they perceive their contact, but this hasn't been kind of one of the things. Um, so I don't know whether it's good or bad or just different or, you know, um, I just take it as an, uh, indicative of one of the ways that, that I interact with her. So you mentioned that she made her presence known to you while you were in the middle of a, a business situation, an actual work yeah. situation. How did that go? Did did um, Well, she was kind of looking at the process and looking at the materials in front of me and um, kind of her, her narrative of it was, oh, so, so this is kind of how it works. Because I think she seemed aware that I would potentially enforce environmental laws and that why I was there was try and explain to a judge um, what went wrong, you know, kind of what violated the law, mm -hmm. um, what obligations the other party should have to make it right, um, what kinds of actions should be taken to clean up 
pollution or to um, stop harmful practices. And, and so she was like, wow, okay. So yeah, uh, you know, it seems a little odd. You do, there's a lot of books involved and stuff like that, you know? Um, but, but I think what she was getting out of it is just she was seeing that I was trying to take um, the principle of what things should be like, that it didn't get represented Okay. That it got harmed, that the 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 way in which this, this part of the world should have walked into creation was getting interfered with, right? Maybe um, that I was trying to show someone who would make a decision. Here it is. Here's the view right. of what went wrong here, and here's what's needed to restore at least the compliance with the law, which mm-hmm. is not a complete, you know, restoration by most of our magical perspectives but could be an important step um, to reduce harm or to clean up problems and help make things right. Um, but she was a little curious. So, you know, oh, the piece comes from this book over here and this comes from this thing over here. And, and then you talk about it, you try and convince them, right? And so she was curious mostly. But um, she didn't necessarily stop your flow while you were doing what you were doing or did it? Well, she didn't mean to stop my flow. Me <laughs> being aware of her presence was, um, wasn't quite distracting. Okay, all right. Luckily, it was uh, for me because <laughs> I'm trying to do a good job too. Um, uh, I don't know that it. I don't think it took away from my ability to to conduct the hearing. Um, it also just was a. Uh, I think she, she was looking to see. So what's this part of your your stuff about? Right. Mm-hmm. This is a big part of how you spend your time, and for me, I connected to. My, the values of, of my spiritual life, um, that I have an opportunity to try and help um, shape other people's behavior, sometimes using um, force, sometimes using persuasion. Um, most of the cases I have settled, and I'm continually surprised at how many people shake my hand on the way out of a settlement conference when they came in just knowing that, that we've alleged that they violated the law and that that they're still probably in violation of the law now right, until they resolve it with us. Right. And so it's surprising to me still that people just, just shake my hand and they're leaving. They say, thank you. And I think it's because I've shown them why we thought something went wrong and the opportunity to, to basically not have to see me again in this situation, but also the opportunity to say, you can, you can fix this, right? At least in some way. Sure. And there's a lot of people that actually like the opportunity to do better. To do better or to, I mean, some people come in really sheepish. Some people come in really angry, right? But however they come in, um, I try to show them an opportunity to at least resolve this with my agency and I, to understand why we're saying that things went wrong, right? Um, and to. To acknowledge that, that that we value their ability to resolve it with us, right? We'd rather do that than go to a hearing. We'd rather do that than be in a position of arguing to a third party about it, about what went wrong or what didn't go wrong. Um, even though we, it has to be clear that we're willing to do that, if if need be, sure. we can't resolve it otherwise. But kind of it, it's a little indication or a view to me, even before very contact or other stuff like that that in letting my own 
values inform my work mm -hmm. can have ways in which it, there's a real positive impact and it isn't just yeah wow that guy is just a kind of wonky and out there and you know because I don't introduce myself in that context of course as a seer or a witch um, or a Wiccan I just am the lawyer involved and in maybe some more subtle ways encourage um, positive outcomes and if I can't encourage them then I'll I'll force the issue um, because I think also there's a rightness to trying to work on um, people who might violate the law and environmental laws to see if we can if we can get the direct people responsible for causing problems mm -hmm. to be responsible for fixing those issues so it should not fall on the rest of us to, to clean up behind folks so you know my contact's been there hasn't really interfered with the work I think helped inform it some uh, I think some of that process preceded contact as well uh, but it's it's been interesting. That's pretty cool. What is something that you would like to see changing in the greater pagan community? Is there, is there anything? I mean, you know, maybe there isn't, but... Well, there's a lot of aspects of the pagan community. I think we're, um, you know, we've got challenges of communicating to, uh, I think, the growing aspects of witchcraft and Wicca and um, pagan practices in general, uh, what um, what value some of the uh, traditions and practices may hold for them. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of fast growth and a lot of people who are curious and um, seeking mm -hmm. guidance, and sometimes not enough guidance uh, is available I think, but I'm not trying to talk down what everybody else might discover and create for themselves because I know I've discovered and created for myself quite a bit along the way too. But I think there's a challenge for um, Wiccan and witchcraft traditions in terms of incorporating a level of growth into uh, our communities um, and also accepting um, sometimes a broader set of traditions, especially for Wiccans and which is the United States a lot of this was derived from you know European practices that aren't necessarily a model of the way nature works here and can be associated um, at least a number of northern European paths can be associated with practices that uh, could be um, taken as or practiced as exclusionary mm -hmm. um, based on um, gender polarity uh, based on some associations or just communities that tend to be uh, you know, Caucasian or white. And I think we face challenges of, uh, in, our, in our Wiccan witchcraft communities especially, of uh, learning inclusivity, um, and not just inclusivity in interfaith, but inclusivity in our communities, because um, the things that I think fundamentally are represented by Wiccan and witchcraft practices are not exclusive to a certain race or a certain region or a certain people. Mm -hmm. And um, like a lot of other paths, you can be called to them uh, from many areas of the world, from many 
uh, you know, genders, races, and ethnicities, and if our practices are structurally or in practice or historically are exclusionary, then um, I think we're failing to represent the deeper lessons of um, of training and of magic and what it's what what are possible from it. Um, so I think that openness and inclusivity are hard. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of growth and the ability to to navigate and learn and um, interact with other traditions or see how broadly um, pagans can accept each other mm -hmm. and find where some real lines need to be for our own self-protection or our own protection against um, abuses. Because um, as we define communities, sometimes they're defined along lines that if they have to be exclusionary and they can in a healthy way, maybe that's okay, right? As I, I came up as a, you know, heterosis guy, and it's okay with me if I don't have access to some ceremonies that are designed for women or that are designed for someone who is not hetero, who is not male. Uh, if I ever have a development in my life where I change my own identification in some way, um, I can hope for acceptance. I can try and insist on it in terms of self-respect, mm -hmm. but again, my access to communities um, of color, of practices that I wasn't necessarily born into or are ancestral for me, um, I think has to be based on things like acceptance and invitation by others, and not because I have some right to be a spiritual tourist and you know acquire things along the way. They're not mine. When none of the practices are, right? There's no more right I have to a practice of witchcraft or Wicca because I might have some Welsh background, or you know, or than I would because there's some Nordic background in my bloodline to be a heathen. Right? I don't own them. Nobody does. But outside of the strong affiliations we can have from, um, you know, community identifications like you know gender. Um, color, race, ethnicity, ancestry, and all that, I just think our healthiest way forward is to ensure that if we explore practices that uh, don't have an obvious grounding in who we are already, that we're invited, um, that we're respectful, that we don't teach them unless we're clearly authorized, that we take care of each other in our diversity by being respectful of um, some privacy uh, from, you know, others, okay. including me as a hetero cis guy. It's right. I, I don't have a free pass to everything in the world, and uh, you know, a, a Diana group or um, you know, a, a Lukumi house or things like that aren't don't exist for me. Right? They exist for themselves and for their own purposes, their own growth, life, magic. And if somebody invites me in, um, I, I will try and foster a level of acceptance. Um, if it's an identification that I, whether invited to be exposed to or not, I can't be in, mm -hmm. I gotta be okay with that. That's on me. Right. Right? I don't, I don't think I, I understand the need, although I see it sometimes, to have conflict over those boundaries. And I know that I also have the have had the opportunity to not um, feel like my identification, um, whether or not it's 
consistent with my presentation and things gives me um, an open door to a place I don't have a right to go. But in part, I think it's based on me trying to take care in, in my steps. Um, I'm not as well trained as some people on the West Coast in my language, um, uh, the ways that I can express respect and interaction. Uh, but I try and learn when I am exposed to them. And I'll always try and be um, sensitive to not just being some, like I don't have a right to be a spiritual tourist, to you know acquire stuff from other places or traditions right. because I'm curious or because I'm open to it. Those aren't passes into traditions and into the essentially the, the, the grounding and validity of the communities of, of people of color or um, African diaspora traditions or religions or even ancient Egyptian ones, for instance. I mean, some people, I think, feel like we can be spiritual tourists without as much um, concern if it seems something that's just kind of old and, you know, there's nobody there really now that would care. So, but it's that kind of attitude in some ways that brought, you know, the Elgin Marbles to the British Museum, and, you know, and resisted their return to where they were created or erected and the, probably the place where they could be um, best honored in, in context. So I guess that's, well, that's a direct answer. But, <laughs> but I think those are challenges for community and a little bit of personal reflection on, on how I think um, I try and address some of those challenges or you know, the best I can do to encourage people, I think it's got to be consistent with the things I'm willing to, to walk myself. Right. One of the things that I believe did pass this Grand Council was a changing of access for individual members to be able to become mem a member. Like the yes. the restriction to become a member. Yes. Cog was originally what, and it became what. Well, originally, membership in Cog was coven based. Yes. So covens were members of COG, and individuals were representatives, and members of covens could have access to COG member benefits, access to our e-lists, um, potential credentialing and things. When we developed uh, individual memberships, um, for years we called them solitary, uh, but we distinguished it as a membership class rather than as a practice of witchcraft or Wicca. So you could be in a coven and be a solitary member of COG. Yes. But, uh, so we dealt with that this year by uh, changing our terminology to be individual memberships. Um, but initially, they were restricted to somebody um, who was, uh, if you're going to be in a, in a uh, membership in COG through a local council where people might know you personally, that you would need to be eligible for priest or priestess credentials. And for us, in some ways, that meant that you, for some of our traditions, because COG has some diversity within it, already of, of traditions and practices that there is a level of acceptance that um, the local council viewed you as somebody who could act as a priest or priestess and that um, if you were going to be a member at the national level where we might not have that level of familiarity that you would uh, be eligible in our, at least within our, our group and the way we view it for elder credentials. So for some trads that meant were you initiated or were you potentially like a third degree who could do your own thing and teach your trad and all that? 
that's perceived uh, been perceived at times as as pretty darn elitist mm -hmm. and uh, we amended our bylaws uh, or decided to do so uh, you know, we'll have to have to finish the rewrite there but there was some language that deleted those requirements from our bylaws so the individual membership in COG would no longer be um, limited to people who were eligible for priest or priestess credentials on a local council or elder credentials for a national members. We hope, um, I think, that um, it's a step for COG being able to be more inclusive of communities that uh, potentially self-identify or self-initiate and that may be um, not close with the local council to know who they were in their community to vouch for them in that way um, so we want to be open uh, more open to membership of cog uh, so this is a small step toward uh, i think lowering the barriers for membership and hopefully eliminating some of the perception that membership in cog is just a uh, kind of a, an elitist club uh, and that it's easy to be not qualified you know, in ways that didn't have a real specific um, grounding in what do we tell somebody? I mean, eligible for priests or priestess credentials or elder credentials is still mostly within COG up to your coven to vouch for mm -hmm. or your local council to vouch for. So, you know, there and wasn't an, a single objective standard that, that we could say to somebody outside who was interested in an individual membership in COG, here's what you got to do. Right. It was confounding and elitist, uh, and certainly perceived that way, even if it wasn't intended to be that way. Um, I think originally COG viewed it as a way to help ensure that the people in COG would know enough of one another to know that we could be safe together, because it was formed at a time when the community was not predominantly out, or, or even that it was very safe to be so, and initial networking between covens as members was often done through kind of high priests and high priestesses. Um, and so um, kind of we're, we're, we're taking a long road to uh, changing some of the original model of COG's organization and some of the old practices of how you communicate between covens and how you might network with one another. Because mm -hmm. for anybody that's come up in a particular, uh, many of the particular uh, Wiccan uh, practices or trads, it's very clear that you don't just reach out to other covens, you know, your priestess talks to the other priestess and they are make arrangements of whether or not someone will visit for ritual or not or things. And our community has grown beyond some of the conventions of how do we um, explore and share our practices. Um, there's a lot of open festivals, a lot of inter-coven contact, and a lot of mobility between covens and practices now. And so we're slowly trying to see, find ways in which COG could um, help open up to the broader community. We think we need to. I think it's, I think it's a wonderful change. I think a lot of the things that were discussed in what little uh, I was in Grand Council this time um, was really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing how things develop over the next year. Thanks, me too. And I'm, I'm very hopeful for the future, I think uh, I think it could go well. Yeah. Well, I would really like to thank you for 
spending some time with us and discussing things and uh, letting our listeners get to know you. Is there any contacts for your local council or even your coven or anything that you would like to share with people if they were interested in reaching out? Um, sure. Um, you know, I'm part of Everglades One Local Council of COG. You can find us at emlc.net. Um, you can listen to our podcast, which is called uh, Reaching for the Moon. So feel free to, to do a quick Google search to find that if you want to subscribe and see what we're doing in our community or what we're offering out to the broader community. Um, uh, you, emlc.net does have information about listening to the podcast or subscribing to it and also our Turning the Tide Festival. Um, you now know me as Kanu, and I'm available on Facebook. Uh, my uh, the the Facebook account name, if you need to look for it, is It's Kanu, I T S C A N U, uh, and uh, I don't think there's too many of me around on Facebook yeah. to get confused. Uh, but you can you can certainly find me there uh, if you want to reach out. Um, I've been uh, happy to be able to talk with you for a bit, so um, I, I hope that the listeners. Can gain something from um, having the opportunity to speak with you today, but um, I'm really happy to, to be able to be here. And on behalf of COG, um, you can find us at COG.org, and uh, we're, we're hoping that if you're interested in COG that you'll find a way to reach out. Um, you can also currently reach me at first at COG.org. Uh, my successors will also be available through that, so after Samhain, uh, our next first officer will be available if you want to email at first at COG.org, uh, or if you're interested in membership, uh, you can always email membership at COG.org for more information about how to become a part of the COG community. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you listening, we want to thank you as well for joining us. And if you want to reach out to us, you can find us at ravensatthecrossroad.com or listen on iTunes Music, Google Play Music, or Spotify. We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter, which I think is Ravens Crossroad, I believe. Crossroads because there was limited characters, um, but you can reach us there. And on our website, we also have a donation page for those that would be interested in helping sponsor us, so that we can actually visit more with uh, pagans around the uh, whether we're in the U.S. or going to Canada, or even if we get to go abroad, which is some of our hopeful future. Yep. Uh, events. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you.